Survivor guilt is really tough to deal with. I got lucky numerous times that day. And why am I still here? Again, you end up having good days, bad days. And just, you know, it is what it is. Welcome back to part two of Rob's story. As we learned in part one, Rob helped a lot of people both before and after the towers collapsed on top of him and Ten House, the fire station he was helping out in the morning of 9-11. We talked in detail about the day. In this episode, we'll talk a little more about it, plus the months Rob spent helping out after 9-11 and the subsequent physical and emotional toll it's taken on him. We'll also find out what happened to the million dollar man. One quick note, as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, Rob and I were chatting in the thick of Hurricane Ida here on the East Coast. Halfway through our conversation, there was a transformer explosion near Rob's house, and the interview continued on a regular phone call, so apologies for the shift in sound quality you'll notice. As his friends and family watched the news unfold that day, and as I watched in horror from just across the river, we all had the same question. Where's Rob? Is he okay? Could he have survived those towers coming down on top of him? We're going to start this episode taking a step back before moving forward. I'm Frank Verderosa, and this is the rest of Rob's story on Everyday Odysseys. People were like, where's Rob? And finally people were able to get in touch with my wife and she's like, oh no, yeah, he's he's down there. The towers are down, we haven't heard from him. She was at work, they had everybody in the conference room watching everything on TV. Her office also knew me and they knew my background. And uh, people were asking each other without asking Kathy, has anybody heard about Rob? What's going on with him? And uh, one of the people who had talked to Kathy said, no, you know, she hasn't heard. So they were like, okay, you know, make sure people stay with her so she's not in the room, you know, just sitting there feeling like she's by herself. And I did try calling from time to time when there was an opportunity. The reality is the communications were down because there was no cell service. Um, when we were over at 2 Rector Street, I was able to find a landline that worked and I was able to get a quick message out saying, hey, uh, you know, I'm alive, but I got more work to do. So this is just a quick, hey, I'm alive. I got to go talk to you later kind of thing. It was a huge relief for everyone to learn that Rob was okay. None of us knew at that point exactly what he'd been dealing with. With communications down, everyone was connecting via AOL. But no one quite knew what was next. We didn't know how Rob was going to get out of there. We certainly couldn't imagine that there would still be more towers coming down. When I was with the fire marshals, it was around four in the afternoon. And we were walking south towards the Trade Center complex and Tower 7 starts to fall. And people come running north towards us and we're still walking towards the building. 
right, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do. So, you know, that's when, you know, you and I were able to talk real quick and you said, you know, hey, get to Jersey and I'll find you and, you know, you get to my place. So that's when uh, I went back down by Battery Park and a, a fishing boat, the captain there said, where do you need to go? I'll take you. So I said, I need to get to Jersey. And next thing I know, he took me across and uh, the recall, the relocation of everybody was taking place. So there were Jersey cops all over the place that were getting ready to come over to Manhattan. And uh, they took a look at me and they were like, holy crap, you know, and uh, his boat didn't line up with the docks over there. So I was getting ready to climb the wall to get up to the ground. And I remember four cops each putting an arm, a hand on my two arms, and they just lifted me right up off the boat and got me up there. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, where am I? And they're like, uh, this is Jersey City. I'm like, okay, I got to get to Hoboken. I said, let me give you a call to let you know I'm in Jersey and, and where I am. By now, my, my cell phone was dead. Not only was Rob's phone dead, but when he was finally able to borrow one from, as it turns out, the mayor of Jersey City, he couldn't remember my number. He'd only known the speed dial setting. Thankfully, he was able to call his wife to get it. And once I got the call, I told him to stay put, I would find him. I drove as close to the water as the police would allow me with all the activity going on. And there was Rob, standing on the corner, covered in gray dust like a statue come to life. We headed back to my place and he got cleaned up and we ordered some food. The experience of looking out my window and seeing Manhattan across the river while simultaneously watching the events of the day on an endless loop on the television was nothing short of surreal. The entire West Side Highway was lit with emergency vehicle lights. After we finally managed to fall asleep, we were woken by a heavy knocking at the door. It was the FBI asking questions. The rumor of the day was that just before the first plane hit, men were spotted on the roof of my building with a camcorder and cheering as it happened. All afternoon there had been crime scene tape around the parking lot, and they had been apparently dusting cars for fingerprints. They showed us printouts of some of the folks they had pulled from the security cameras. They looked more like beachcombers from Florida than terrorists. Needless to say, we hadn't seen them around, and I never heard another word about it. The next day, Rob made his way back home through New York City to catch a train to Long Island. Looking back, it's hard to imagine that the trains were running again so quickly. And just like Rob had mentioned in the last episode about bikes being in the rubble of the Trade Center from food deliveries that never made it back out, I recall reading that for weeks, cars sat in suburban train station parking lots for owners that would never return. As soon as he could, Rob checked in with his fire department and got some needed medical attention. In my firehouse, I was the last guy that was unaccounted for. So when I was finally able to call my firehouse, I called in. I remember talking to the dispatcher. And I'm like, uh, hey, Tommy, it's Weisberg. And before I can get the next word out, I remember him taking the phone and, and screaming out to everybody, I got Weisberg on the phone. You know, and I was like, all right, Tommy, how bad is it? And I'm waiting to hear how many of our guys got killed. And he's like, 
Rob, we didn't lose anybody. He goes, you were the last one that we just didn't know about. That to me was very emotional. That was when I first really broke down and uh, they're like, okay, relax. We're going to get you some help and everything. And, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they took me to the hospital the first, that, that first time to uh, get checked out and everything. One of the first things that struck Rob upon visiting his firehouse is what he described as a pile of paper bound together as thick as a phone book. When he asked what it was, he was told it was a list of all the first responders lost on 9-11. Injured and exhausted, having finished several of what would be many hospital visits to come, Rob was determined to head back into Manhattan and continue to help out at Ground Zero. September 11th was a Tuesday. I got home Wednesday. I was having medical issues. I was in the hospital on Thursday. Got out of the hospital later that day. And then uh, I ended up at the hospital again, I think Saturday. So that was less than a week. I was in the hospital twice already. Then I started finding out about groups to get down there. At this point, again, my office, my accounting job, the building was, you couldn't use it because of all the damage to the building. So I was able to spend more time at my firehouse. And I remember when going down there, it was tough because, for example, I mean, I can't tell you how many alarms I responded to, right? Over This is my 28th year doing this. So I'll never forget the first alarm after that. And the call came in, you know, smoke showing the whole thing, right? first thing out of my mind was, do I want to still do this? And can I still do this? Which are two different things. The answer, of course, was yes and yes. And a new chapter in volunteering began. I ended up working down there, not just that day, but I became very involved with the rescue recovery. So I ended up working down there for the next nine months involved with that. I was with one group. And then around Thanksgiving time, they had some cutbacks on the crews that were down there and my group got cut. But I had interacted with a lot of other groups down there. And, uh, you know, they're like, all right, well, we'll see you next time. And I'm like, well, actually, no, uh, we just got cut. So I don't know what I'm going to do. They said, no, no, you're on our crew now. So you're not cut, meet up with us and you're on. Like I said, you always look for that silver lining. We had guys not just firefighters, but we had FEMA guys and other people that we were working with. And I'll tell you, I met some of the greatest people down there over the next nine months. Rob goes on to recall how one day on a meal line, he met some workers from Alabama. They shared a laugh as Rob asked what exactly grits were. It's touching that in the presence of all this disaster, volunteers from around the world had quickly assembled to work their way through that debris pile while searching for signs of life or worse. I remember being on, a, on by the food line, and there was a guy next to me. He got his tray. And, you know, you're working down there. Guys are hungry. He gets his plate of food, and then he goes over and throws it out. And I was like, what's, what's the matter? And he pointed at his boots. He realized, like, there were human remains on his boots. 
and uh you know it's like yeah it's easy to lose your appetite after that you know we had a lot of different situations that ended up happening down there so for example one night we had a situation where there was a brown beat up bag left outside and everybody's like really edgy right and it's like what where, where, what is this bag where'd it come from I'm like i don't know who they're like who left it here I'm like we don't know so we end up calling the bomb squad to come because now again you're hearing you know beware of packages and all that kind of stuff right so so they the bomb squad comes to get the robot and uh this guy shows up wait wait that's my bag that's my bag you know it turns out he was a businessman i think he was an accountant and uh he came to pay his respects he put his bag down he forgot and uh by the time he realized it we had a situation on our hands now because he forgot his bag you know now, another night i'm working down there my hands are full we'd have dignitaries coming through left and right and uh i'm like excuse me you know and they're still standing there in their suits and everything i'm like excuse me and they're not moving so like i said my hands are full and i gently give a nudge with my elbow so i push my way through and take care of what i have to do and put the stuff down and uh somebody goes to me uh do you realize you just nudged the was a president or prime minister of switzerland out of the way oh, <laughs> oh i'm sorry but he was in my way this stuff's getting heavy <laughs> i'm sure he you understood <laughs> yeah yeah he was totally cool about it you know and i'm like I'm surprised like their version of secret service allowed me to do that. You know, some, you figure somebody would have been paying a little more attention to, just to his surroundings that, Hey, there's a guy here with his hands full. Let's, uh, you know, let the poor guy work, you know, a lot of effort went into keeping everyone working down in the pit, safe, fed and taken care of. Rob tells a funny story of heading into St. Paul's church where massage tables had been set up. Just as he removed his shirt to be worked on, people began filing in for mass. It didn't help that the massage tables were right near the altar. So Rob got dressed, packed up his stuff, and painfully worked his way out of there to head back home. But the generosity and hospitality stuck with him. Again, you always look for that silver lining, like I mentioned before. One thing was a lot of school kids had made up Hershey bars but they made up their own wrappers to go around the chocolate bars. To this day, I saved the wrappers that the kids made for the, the candy bars that I had. You know, it's funny because, you know, you sit there and you think about the amount of time we spent down there after. Um, at the end of May, in the back of the, of the church, in the cemetery, the union guys sponsored a barbecue for everybody to get together and say goodbye. And it wasn't just for the guys and the women working down there. It was for the families. So I brought my wife down and I was able to introduce her to a lot of the people where, you know, you come home with the stories, you know, oh yeah, I was working with so-and-so and all uh, oh, this happened, this is pretty funny or, you know, whatever. So it was a chance for people to say goodbye. It was a chance for the families to put their faces, with the names and everything. And uh, it was it was very emotional because after that, it was just like somebody flipped the switch. You know, you were in go, go, go mode. Let's do what we can do. You know, 
what can we do now at two? It's just over. You know, it's done. A nine-month adrenaline rush, and then it's like, I don't know what to do with myself. I learned a lot during that time. I mean, I met a lot of people. I met people from the morgue, and I said to them, you know, I understand you guys do a lot of DNA testing and trying to identify people. Um, I said to them, listen, I'm not looking to be morbid or anything, but can I come by and see how you guys do all that? And they were like, sure. So I went to the morgue and uh, they showed me how they do what they do. And it was, it was emotional because they had 20 tractor trailers, two rows of 10, just with buckets and containers of you know human remains that they were trying to identify. It was done as nicely as I could. In front of each trailer was a huge floral arrangement. They tried to really be as compassionate as I could considering the situation. The loss of life on 9-11 was unimaginable. It's amazing how quickly crews worked to clear the debris while being respectful of any remains found. It seems like the identification process went on forever as people waited for closure on their loved ones. And in 2018, it was reported that deaths from 9-11 related diseases would actually outnumber the deaths on 9-11 itself. The long-term effects, both physical and emotional, continue to be a struggle for Rob. Uh, I am on medication for physical issues every day. Um, I have been for over 15 years, probably longer. You know, I actually was in the hospital this past July. For some, I have to get tested now. I, uh, they, they have the health monitoring program. And because of my situation, they keep me on a pretty short leash. So um, I've been fortunate because uh, nothing as severe as some of the other guys. I mean, we've lost more guys after 9-11 than we did on that day. Yeah. But I was in the hospital this past July. And this was the first time in several years where I did not have ulcers. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I still, I'm on medication for, uh, you know, different things and it's what my life is like, you know, a lot of doctor visits, a lot of medication, but again, it's not as bad as what other guys have been going through or went through before they passed away. You know, I have to get tested every year and, uh, sometimes, you know, in between They'll say, listen, it's been a while since you had uh, some of these more intensive tests done. So let's get those squared away. It's one of those things, it's it's always on my mind. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, to me, it's just not if, it's when the bad stuff's going to show up. And, uh, you know, that does make me cranky, you know, especially when it's time for me to go for my, you know, my annual stuff because it's like, is this the time they're going to tell me? You know, again, my kids are young. You know, I think it'd be, for me, easier if when the bad stuff does show up, they're older and more independent. I wondered how living through that day affects how he sees the world and what changes he might make to his day-to-day existence as a result of 
the reality is after all that, my mentality has been, what do I need to do to be ready for the next one? Yeah. Um, so after all that, like I said, I mean, the last time when all this happened, I was put in charge of triage and I had like a basic first aid. Most of it was from the boy scouts. So I ended up getting my ENT certification, you know, through New York state and everything. So I did that, um, became pretty proficient in, in martial arts cause I'd fly a lot. I used to have a job where I was like two weeks in New York and two weeks overseas. And I'd be going back and forth, yeah. you know, all over the world. You know, usually I would, beforehand I would take the window seat so I could sleep. Nobody would bother me if they had to get up because my plan was get on the plane, go to sleep and, you know, miss most of the flight. So I wouldn't be bored. You know, after all that, uh, you know, took the, uh, the aisle seat with the, the, you know, the theory being, if somebody's going to do something stupid, I don't want to have to climb to see what I can do to stop this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, the other thing was everybody's going to make one slip up from their perspective. That would be an opportunity to do something. And I want to be, you know, available for that opportunity. And, uh, you know, and we've trained in different scenarios and we actually set up, uh, some of the scenarios on what would you do if there was a hijacking on a plane and we would work on different techniques because that's the environment. You know, you can't say there's that aisle, you know, in, in the middle of the, of the seats, how are you going to deal with that? The seats are close together. What if the person's behind you? What if the person's in front of you? You know, you know, we trained all these different scenarios. Yeah. I go out with my family. We want to go to the movies my kids now have the mentality of, I say to them, all right, we're going to the movies. Where's our meeting place? Again, what if there's an active shooter or something like that? Where are we meeting if we get separated? Things like that. I went into accounting, not because I like accounting, but because that's what the FBI wanted. You know, one, that was one of the backgrounds they wanted, if you wanted to be an agent for them. So I was at that time, deep into the process of being a candidate for, for the FBI. Unfortunately, the government had a hiring freeze. So uh, basically that didn't work out. So the accounting thing became my plan B. But subsequent to that, um, I was able to get involved uh, with them to support them in a way where I would match up FBI resources with community needs. Again what is out there, what's going on and what can we be doing to be prepared and available should that next thing happen. People don't realize if you look at the statistics, most of the terrorism that happens in the United States is domestic. It's not international. Okay. When you look at Oklahoma city, that wasn't foreign. That was an American. What's really, really that is when you look at that situation, when you look at recently the Capitol, okay, with the insurrection, the number of first responders that have committed suicide as a result of being a part of responding to those situations because of the PTSD. 
Believe me, I totally understand it. And I'm thrilled that more celebrities are out there saying it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. You know, help remove some of the stigma that's been out there for years. You know, if you have a heart issue, you know, we'll get you help for that. You know, you have a lung issue, you have kidney issue, whatever. But people forget the brain is just another organ. And for whatever reason, that organ doesn't get the same respect as the rest of the body. And uh, so people are afraid to either get help or admit that they need help. And, you know, you see what happens to a lot of these guys and women. There are these other issues that just don't go away. I know that I did certain things that day just to protect myself and my sanity. I mean, when people started jumping, I started going towards the front of the firehouse. I remember saying to myself, stop, don't go. You don't need to see it. There's nothing that you can do that's going to help these people at the end of their fall. Your hands are full with what you have to do already. Focus on that. And, you know, it, kind of selfish to think that way but I'm glad I was selfish in that moment because those were images I want me to have in my head forever while Rob may have safeguarded himself against seeing some of the most traumatic things that day he did see plenty those experiences have a way of triggering his PTSD in some unexpected ways There are definitely triggers out there that I've become used to preparing myself for. For example, going to Home Depot. I would love going to Home Depot before 9-11. And then afterwards, you go into Home Depot and you could sense the dust from like the sheetrock, lumber and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, to me, that's a trigger. Flowers, walking past like a lot of the delis would have flowers out front that you could buy. You know, that was a trigger. And people are like, flowers? Why flowers? Uh, the reality is I went to a lot of memorial services after and spent a lot of time in funeral homes and churches and stuff like that. And it was just like, all right, here's another service, more death, you know, more loss. And uh, that would just remind me of all, all those services. Bacon. People are like, bacon? Bacon's awesome. Well, I was dealing with a woman from Japan who was on fire. So that's what she looked like. She was probably burned over 70% of her body. And uh, I remember I had to cut her wedding ring off because the blistering around the ring was so painful. She didn't really speak a lot of English. And uh, I knew some phrases in Japanese, you know, stupid little things. But I would say them to her just to try and make her laugh because, you know, you're not just dealing with the wound. You're trying to treat the whole person. So, you know, it's psychological first aid because it's like, okay, if I'm laughing, maybe things aren't so bad. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I was able to cut her ring off and get the pieces together and give her a little envelope that she put in her pocketbook so she'd have everything and she wouldn't have the pain from the ring with the blister going around the ring. 
there were all sorts of triggers out there and the hard part sometimes is even now I can come across a trigger that I didn't expect or I couldn't identify. I mean, the reality is the past 20 years, sleeping is very difficult. When the triggers kick in and I can't identify it, sleeping goes from very difficult to almost not at all. And I'll be up literally for days until I crash. And, uh, you know, I'm still trying to function, you know, now I have kids and, uh, you know, I didn't have kids before 9-11. I wondered how long these PTSD episodes lasted. The thing is, it's not just a day. The day could last a few days. It could last over a week. So it's just, it's challenging. I know I have to go to work. I know, oh, here's a schedule with, I have to take the boys to whatever. And I have to suck it up and put a smile on my face and go outside. But, you know, you hear some of the songs that are out there, like um, Alan Jackson has a great, I I end up listening to a lot of country music after all this. And uh, Alan Jackson has this great song, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? And, uh, you know, it's like, there's a line there basically saying, you know, were you with a group of people, but you felt like you were all alone. And that's a very common feeling. I'll be in a room full of people and I just feel like there's a bubble around me and I'm just like not engaged. You know, I'm physically there, but mentally I'm just like, things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. It's weird. And the reality is I, I hide it a lot. That's just, that's just a fact. And just like how in a post 9-11 world, Rob feels compelled to talk to his kids about strategies and situations that might come up in everyday life, he also does his best to talk to them about what he's dealing with mentally. I do talk to my kids about it, saying, listen, you know, uh, I'm having a bad day, so uh, I need you guys to really try and be on your best behavior for a while so I can sort through things because uh, when I'm having those bad days, it's obvious. I mean, I, I still have PTSD now. It, it's not going to go away. And when those bad days are there, you know, again, not sleeping, short temper, a lot of yelling because I, I can't, I just, I can't deal with the nonsense. And one of my boys was reading a book I think it's called The Towers Falling. And uh, it had to do with this father who was there and he has PTSD. And, and it talks a lot about things that I, I would be like. My life is very parallel to what that character is like. And uh, it helps them understand a bit. you know. And, and, I, and I've said to them, I wish you knew me before that. Because, uh, you know, I I try and have fun with them now. But we would have had a lot more fun before that. I'll tell you as someone that knows Rob well that he does an amazing job of concealing what he's dealing with. On the surface, he's the same outgoing, wisecracking guy he always was. He's very active and engaged with his kids. This discussion with Rob is actually the most we've ever talked about what he's been dealing with. This was also the first time I heard him mention survivor's guilt, 
survivor guilt is really tough to deal with. Um, you know, like I said, I lost friends down there. Um, I got lucky numerous times that day. And, you know, you sit there and go, well, why am I still here? You know, and, uh, you know, and, uh, it's something that's really tough to deal with. And, uh, again, you end up having good days, bad days, and just, you know, it is what it is. I would imagine that survivor's guilt is hard enough, but Rob's story caught the media's attention early on, with New York Newsday shining a spotlight on him and some other firefighters in the shadow of 9-11. And that story went nationwide. When I was involved with the rescue with the, the two EMTs, they ended up writing a, a news article with the local newspaper, and then Newsday got wind of it, and they did a full-blown story, and we were featured on a Sunday Newsday that the AP ended up picking up, and this thing went nationwide. So, for example, I, when I was at my accounting job, I called this person who I never met in person, but I had like a business relationship with. And they were like, hey, by the way, I know what you look like. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, yeah, I'm looking at it right now in the Seattle Times. I'm like, what? You know, and I got calls from other places. Oddly enough, there was someone else that had been in Rob's presence on 9-11 that was also featured in a news article. And that led to an unlikely reunion. When I was at work, about a year after all this, my office at that time, it was fantastic. We had 19 countries represented in the office. So one day, this woman who happened to be from China comes knocking on my door holding a Chinese newspaper. She says, uh, do you know this man? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And she says, well, he's looking for you. I go, are you serious? Cause I'm, I've been looking for him. And so I'm like, come in, come in, sit down. We closed the door and she helped me find the phone number to the newspaper. Cause it was a Chinese newspaper in New York city. And we were able to find the reporter. And so my friend said to her, uh, you have him and he's looking for Rob. And she's like, well, I have Rob and he's looking for him. So we ended up putting together a surprise reunion. Me and the million dollar man and his family arrived at the meeting place at the same time. We ended up running into each other in the parking lot, which wasn't exactly supposed to happen. Recognized me immediately. And, uh, he came over with this, you know, walking with a cane because he had like, had multiple surgeries. It was very intense, very emotional. So we go into the firehouse. Uh, the EMT is in another room. They kept him in another room. It was almost like, uh, don't come out until we tell you to kind of situation. He has no idea what's going on. So the media is there from the, from the Chinese newspaper, you know, the reporter, her camera people. He comes out. He sees the two of us and, uh, I mean, people are just crying. Okay. And, uh, the million dollar man's wife, 
she knew what happened. She kept, you know, she knew that uh, her husband was constantly saying, Rob, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I was like, no, I'm not leaving you. I just, I'm just trying to figure something out, you know, figure how to, you know, let me get my head around this whole thing. And uh, she said to me, listen, if, if you decided to leave him, I would have understood. And for me to see him with his wife and daughter, who was 13 at the time, as a whole family, was worth everything we went through and, and everything I, I'm still going through. His daughter now is a doctor. We still keep in touch. Um, you know, when my dad passed away, I mean, you know, his family came to my dad's service and everything. Um, when my kids were born, you know, they, they, they showed up for that. You know, a lot of times when we have, you know, the big family parties, they're there. You know, I have a picture with me. And again, this picture is before kids, but it's me, my wife, my parents, my sister, him, his wife, and his daughter. Okay. And people see this picture, you know, and they're like, oh, who's this? I, I just said, it's my family. We have to thank Rob and all the heroes that not only helped out on 9-11, but helped to clear and rebuild the area at the expense of their own health and safety. For us, Rob is family. He was the best man at my wedding and is the godfather to our daughter. I'm also godfather to his son and my wife is godmother to their second child. I'm so grateful to Rob, not only for all he's done, but for sharing his story so openly and in ways that even those of us in his orbit haven't heard. Be sure to check the show notes on your device for links to see photos and read additional information about Rob's story, including a picture of the million dollar man taken on 9-11 that was unearthed, as well as other items of interest. Thank you for listening and thank you for the amazing feedback you've given. I'd like to ask a favor. If you could just take a moment and give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and if you're so inclined, join some of the others who've left kind reviews. We're just getting started. There's a whole series of compelling stories coming your way on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and most platforms. We'll talk to you soon. This has been Everyday Odysseys, a limited series produced by Frank Verderosa. If you have a story to share or know someone that does, please reach out by emailing everydayodysseys at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Coming up on Everyday Odysseys. And I was about to say to her, so what do you think? What do you see in here? And I said, oh, she's never going to tell you anything. Don't even bother. And out of the blue, she said, I'm really worried about what I'm seeing on the right side. She goes, I'm not so sure about the left side. And my eyes kind of bugged open and I went, oh, I said, okay, so you think it's cancer? And she said, I do. 